Welcome to the World Nomads podcast, delivered by World Nomads, the travel lifestyle and insurance brand. It's not your usual travel podcast. It's everything for the adventurous, independent traveler. Hi, it's Kim and Phil with you delivering a very special edition of the World Nomads podcast as we explore a significant world event from 1986. In fact, Phil, that was a huge year globally. There was a disease commonly known as mad cow that hit UK cattle and that caused major reform in farming practices. The space shuttle Challenger exploded shortly after takeoff, watched by people live on TV around the world, including myself. Did you see that footage Yes, live? I did while I was working in news at the time. And the worst ever nuclear disaster happened as the Chernobyl nuclear power station exploded, causing the release of radioactive material across much of Europe and the evacuation of thousands of people in a race literally against time. Yeah, it's Chernobyl that we'll be exploring in this episode with the world fixated on currently on that HBO series Chernobyl, which depicts the disaster of April that year and the unprecedented cleanup effort. The series has even broken a Game of Thrones record, being rated the highest fan-scored TV show in history on IMDb. But prior to the series, many travellers, uh, you know, they do visit that area each year. And at the time that we're recording this, Kim, the UK's president says he wants to attract even more visitors by turning the radioactive area around Pripyat and Chernobyl into a tourist site. Sight of the world's worst peacetime nuclear catastrophe might appear an unlikely sell. But Volodymyr Zelensky is brimming with optimism. Chernobyl, he admitted, had been a negative part of Ukraine's brand. But now he believes the region is due a new lease of life. It was, he said, a unique place to show how nature can revive after a global man-made disaster, adding, too, that it had a real ghost town. We have to show this to the world, he said. Scientists, ecologists, historians and tourists. That's the BBC's Danny Eberhard. And in this episode, our guests range from a photographer who's collated a book of pics after around 21 visits, an Aussie guy like many in the world, as you said, people visit, he booked a tour there, and Kate Brown, an historian of environmental and nuclear history, among other things. Our first guest, though, is Scott Wilson, host of the TV show Departures, who has filmed at the site and Scott, were you apprehensive going to Chernobyl for the first time? Yeah, yeah, a little bit, a little bit apprehensive. I mean, you put a lot of, as you do, as anyone who travels uh, often does, you put a lot of trust in a lot of other people very quickly on a whim sometimes. Uh, This one was... Uh, maybe a, a whole whack of trust, um, and people say, you know, this is this is how it works, and uh, and this is what you should do, and this is how you remain safe. Um, but yeah, no, there there was certainly some some apprehension going into uh, one of the most radiated uh, parts of the world, um, you know, with without any <laughs> without any education on on how radiation works and all that ahead of time. Um, yeah, certainly. Oh, no, yes, you do put trust in people. But did that give you any instruction at all, apart from handing the guy counter and saying, let me know if this goes off? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, and the other thing too was uh, anyone who's seen the, the episode where we're there, you know, they give us these, uh, you know, like clean suits that basically keeps the dust off. And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, well, what, what does this really do? And, and literally it is to keep 
the dust off because it's it's a lot of the soil that's that's the most uh, irradiated and uh, you know that that dust being kicked up and and being on your clothes and breathing it in and everything is su- supposedly uh, the the worst part of it there and so that's what it's supposed to do but it is unnerving to go into a place that again without a without a ton of understanding of uh, of radiation and how it works and what its effects are etc uh, to go in and, and be putting on uh, a suit that looks like a costume a painter would wear is is yes. a Unnerving. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, did you watch the the HBO series? You know what? I haven't. It's it's on my to do list. Um, so yeah, I, I've heard amazing things about it, um, and I I do know though. I mean, I guess it's a bit of a catch twenty two, and and we're partly responsible too. That uh, the the tourism uh, of of Chernobyl has sort of gone through the roof um, with you know with the dawn of obviously that series uh, and the, the interest that's been generated. So. Uh, you know, it, it's always a double-edged sword for, for guys like us who are, you know, trying to spread the good word of travel and to go out there and explore. But it is double-edged sword because you're, you're bringing more people to a place that uh, it's always questionable. Can it be managed properly and, and all of that? So it's, uh, yeah, you know, and, and, and selfishly. These are, are pretty amazing places that hold a special place in our heart too. So, you know, if it becomes the kind of place where it's like, oh, everyone goes there. You know, my grandma went to Chernobyl last weekend and she had a great old time and stuff. It's like, oh, I'll kind of take some of the buzz out of it, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll explore that a little further. But once um, they went back into Chernobyl to get rid of all the animals that may have been, that would have been contaminated, the boys put on these like nappies around their crown jewels. So that the radiation wouldn't affect, obviously, their, their sperm count. Did you take right. that into consideration when you were putting on your paint suit? <laughs> your Geiger count? No, you know no, it's it's so funny too. You, and, and you have you have the paint, so you think, oh, can I double it up around that area? Or or yeah, can is it better to put the the ventilation mask over the genital region or the face? <laughs> What's what do I what do I value more here? Yeah, no, no. What is it that's so fascinating about it? Because yeah, I for for me, and uh, I'll I'll go out and kind of speak for us for for Andre and, and Justin and I. Um, yeah, there's there's sort of that dark cloud uh, mystery about the place, um, and I I can't really put my finger on it, but I've always had a, a fascination with kind of that uh, post war Soviet era. Um, and tourism and, and even you know, myself and uh, and my now wife at the time girlfriend did a tour through a lot of you know former Soviet bloc countries Eastern Europe and uh, much to her chagrin I was dragging her through the woods looking at you know a declassified uh, you know Red Army maps trying to find abandoned uh, missile silos in the forest and she thought we were we were nuts and we kind of were uh, there, there's always been uh, an interest there I think because. To me, uh, I'm, a, I'm a baby of the 1980s. In fact, 1980, just, I just escaped the 70s. Um, and, and growing up in the 80s, you know, all of the movies, the, the, the bad guy was the, the Soviets and all of that. And, you know, you look at, what was it, Rocky IV and, and all of that. There was, there was sort of a, uh, a pop culture thing, at least for, for North America, where, um, you know, the, the dark side, the, you know, the... the, the evil access kind of thing was, was Soviet Russia. And so I think that there's, there's a, a whole portion of that that became deeply ingrained and, and always had a fascination. So, so Chernobyl was, was 
kind of ticked that box as well and, and, and really had an interest. But obviously the, uh, you know, the, the horrifying reality of it um, and, uh, and the mystery of, of not understanding. And I think even a lot of people then, uh, up until now, the, the very weak understanding that we have of, of radiation, the long-term effects and how we can clean it up and, uh, and all of that, it, it just became a, a very enticing place to, to go look at. Such a great episode, which we'll share in show notes. Phil loved the entire um, episode. I didn't get a chance to get the whole way through it. But um, you met a, a guy that stayed there. Um, yes. And all he seemed to do was talk. <laughs> he, uh, I think the, the poor guy was was a bit starved for attention. He was a bit lonely, certainly living where he did within that, that 10 kilometer exclusion zone. I don't blame him. Um, but yeah, he was, he was a lovely man. Uh, Sava, I believe was his name. And, um, yeah, incredibly interesting man, but, but uh, yeah, kind of a sad story at the same time, you know? Um, uh, yeah, for, for those who haven't seen it, I mean, he was, he and his wife, uh, decided to, to stay behind and against, uh, everyone's wishes and everyone, uh, the government kind of, uh, forcing an evacuation, uh, it was his wife who said, you know what, we've built our whole life here. And they were elderly people, even at the time uh, in 1986, when, when uh, the, uh, the issue happened, um, and said, you know, we've built a life here, where are we going to go? Like, you know, and basically broke down in tears saying, I'm not leaving. And, you know, talk about a true love story. He just sort of said, all right, then we'll stay. I'll, I'll, I'll stay. You're not going to leave. I'm not going to leave. And, and they stayed behind. And not just the 30 kilometer exclusion zone that, you know, a few hundred people decided to, to either stay behind or, or move back into a few years after. But within that 10 kilometer exclusion zone, which was a really frightening area to be in, because as we now know uh, a little bit about having, having, you know, gone there, talked to the, the, the people who do know a lot more about radiation than I do, uh, is, is that the dangerous part is that accumulation. It's the longer you're there, the longer you're exposed to it, you know, so going in for small doses isn't really the issue. It's, you know, days, weeks, months, and in their case, years on end being exposed to it is, uh, is really the danger. I forget. Did you go into Pripyat, the, the town, the abandoned town? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. How, cl- how close yeah. is that to, uh, the reactor? Pripyat's very close. I, I, I don't want to go out on a limb and say exactly how, but uh, but it's, it's definitely inside the 10k zone. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. It's it, and moreover, it's sort of to the the west northwest of Reactor Four that exploded, and that was the way the wind was blowing. So I mean, it was directly in the line of fire, so to speak. Um, so yeah, that that was why, uh, and and because it was a sizable town that was housing, you know, most of the workers and the workers' families of that. Uh, that power plant and and uh, it took them i don 't know again i don 't want to speak at a turn for for fact check side of things, but uh, I think it, it took them at least you know twelve to twenty four hours to say uh, we should probably evacuate all these thousands of people you know and and for a lot of them it was it was well too late so what do you think of the Ukraine president wanting to open this this area up to tourism he th- He pretty much thinks it 's a you know an ideal theme park <laughs> uh yeah, it is. and again, I guess the way my heart and my gut feels is contradictory because we went there and not only did we go, uh, we filmed a show there to, to sort of show it off. So, I mean, one can make the argument we're just part of the problem <laughs> as well. But, um, and, and for, you know, for, uh, for a country that, that may very well need 
uh, tourism money badly. Um, you know, it's not my country. Who am I to say what they should do best and how they should handle their resources? As bizarre of a resource for tourism as an irradiated, exploded nuclear power plant might be. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think if it's if it's done in a controlled manner, if it's done where uh, you know, they, maybe they can control the amount of people going in and, and that people truly realize that they are ex- what they're exposing themselves to and, uh, and how to do that. You know what I mean? It's, it's not a theme park and I don't think it should be viewed as a theme park. It's, it's, uh, it's a memorial to a lot of people who either immediately or over years later lost their lives. It's a tragedy. Um, and so I, I don't think anyone should go there with the idea that it's just, um, a kind of an urban exploration, you know, fun outing of, oh, let's crawl through abandoned places, this, that, and the other thing. I think if you can go there uh, to truly learn something and to try to experience, um, you know, the, the horror that went on there and, and take something away from it, then I think that's the importance of it. I think that's how, how it should be done and, and viewed, you know. I think this is kind of a recent development because of, you know, the problems with over-tourism. But at the time that you were shooting that documentary, were you having those yeah. thoughts about, oh, we're part of the problem, we're sort of promoting something that, you know, may end up being a tourist development? Well, we not, I don't think specifically for visiting Chernobyl and Pripyat, um, but the further we want, went on into the series, and again, in the first season, it was like, oh, yeah, you know, let's do these places and these things. And the more we were exposed to different situations, the more we were exposed to different people, um, cultural sensitivity, all of that sort of stuff. And, and just the way things have gone, it, it, as silly as it sounds, but even, you know, in the 10 years, uh, the awareness of, of cultural sensitivity, cultural re- uh, appropriation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the further in we went, the more sensitive we were to that sort of thing. And I mean, we, we did make certain decisions uh, not to go to certain places because we felt that while we could go here, there, or another place that might have been kind of a hot spot at the time, and we might get out uh, without having um, sustained any damage or being kidnapped or whatever uh, ourselves, it was just it was irresponsible for us to show. I mean, I think a lot of people looked at our show as, you know, a, a touristy or a tourism, like a backpackers kind of show. And, and there was a certain amount of, of truth to that. We didn't want to lead people to believe that, you know, we, we got through a place uh, unscathed when in fact, you know, somebody else might go there and it was just, uh, it, it wasn't safe at the time. So we, we made conscious decisions not to do that. But the more time goes on, the more I think back of, of some of those places, not the least of which Chernobyl, where, yeah, we, you know, we were or potentially are part of the part of the problem to, to draw attention to a place that people say, I want to go there. Thanks, Scott. A link to that episode in show notes. I loved it. There's lots of vodka drinking going on. <laughs> nice. Vodka and pickles. There you go. At the very start of that chat, Scott did mention heading to Chernobyl without any real education of radiation and its effects. So that's why I thought I should bring in the big guns, Phil, to explain. Okay. Kate Brown, an historian of environmental and nuclear history at Massachusetts, have I said that correctly? Massachusetts. Institute of Technology. You can just Kate, call it MIT if you want. <laughs> yeah, yeah, at MIT. <laughs> Kate, have you watched the show? Yes, I did watch the show. Thoughts? And my thoughts on it is that, you know, it's, it's fascinating to watch. I thought that um, the producers did a really good job of 
making it look Soviet and sound Soviet. And, you know, people are driving in, in Soviet vehicles and, and they, they have a Soviet speak. Um, they did a really wonderful job and, and this is amazing for a fictional drama, is spending a lot of time describing and explaining how a nuclear reactor works, in particular this RBMK reactor, and then explaining in this big courtroom drama scene how it blew up. And I was really, I was like, wow, they're really going into a lot of technical detail. And I think what happens when they did, what they did, did by doing that is it kind of became like a, a truth legitimizer kind of uh, aspect so that people are like, oh, it's, it seems so real. It seems so factual. This isn't a, a, a fictional drama. This must be history. Well, I have read your name mentioned in the same articles as, as the show, as the HBO show, suggesting that you somehow, and we'll get to your book, is contributing to scaremongering. Oh, yeah. Well, see, you know, that's, What's really become interesting since I've published this book, which is not so much about the accident itself, because I think the accident is, itself is a bit of a distraction, and so is the Chernobyl zone that draws all kinds of tourists, but that the real drama played out not, you know, seconds after the, the plant blew, but in the months and years that followed. And it didn't play out inside the depopulated Chernobyl zone because nobody was left there. But it played out in the territories that were contaminated with Chernobyl radioactivity, but were fully populated. And some of these places were as contaminated as the Chernobyl zone. And people lived there for 15 years after the accident. And that's really, that is a dramatic story that's been overlooked by the accident narrative. And so one of the things that happened, why we don't know this story, is that um, pro-nuclear lobbyists and industry scientists came in and said, you know, this is all overblown. These people who claim to be sick aren't really sick. Um, the people who, who do claim to be sick have something called radiophobia, which is, a, you know, uh, stress-induced illnesses from fear of radiation. And the people who say that there are problems are fear mongers, and they're really causing all the harm. And so I, I wrote about all this in my, in my book. I wrote about scientists who took evidence of you know, biopsies of children with cancers and, and tested them, found indeed that they were cancers, and then they hid the evidence And I, about scientists who were threatened with being fired and were fired because they spoke about these problems. And this is all in my book. And so suddenly I published my book and the same thing starts to happen to me. I became basically a character in my own history. So I haven't read your book and apologies, but obviously I reached out because it just seems to be, goes hand in hand with the commentary surrounding this series. But have you mapped the rate of, of cancers and birth defects and other radioactivity illnesses through prevailing winds, I guess, and time through outside of that exclusion zone, places like East Germany and Scotland, we know in the news that, that they were affected? So my book, you know, it's such a big topic and there was so much archival information that I only dealt with the territories inside the former Soviet Union. So mostly territories of Ukraine, Western Russia and Belarus. I didn't I didn't work on the bigger European story and European territories like Scotland and Bavaria and Austria, Italy, Greece also got um, hit with Chernobyl contamination. But the territories, you know, especially in, in southern Belarus, really got a big dose. And I didn't map this, the 
the contamination and the, and the growing illnesses and the contaminated food, Soviet um, doctors and radiation monitors and scientists did in the years after the accident. They started right away. That's that very summer of 1986. They went in, they sent in 9,000 doctors. They looked at hundreds of thousands of people. They took uh, millions of tests of food um, and and, and air and water and ground and all that kind of stuff. And they sort of mapped it all out. And what's interesting about the records I found, and I was usually the first to check these records out, is that they were doing this all uh, as classified documents. And you know, you know the way the Soviet Union worked, they were a very secretive country. And the people who were you know, logging all this data into the file thought that they were having a private conversation, that this information would never be made public. They couldn't imagine in 1987 the collapse of the Soviet Union just four years later. This is why this record is so interesting, is we don't have any anywhere really in the world um, uh, an accounting of what happens to people when they're exposed to chronically to low and medium doses of radioactivity. We know what happens when people are exposed to acute doses of radiation. They get that that's what show, that's what happens in the show. People get they start to throw up. Men, you know, their sperm count disappears. They start to have problems, you know, blood disorders, anemia. They start to bleed from the inside out. Their organs start to fail and they die or they're very sick for a long time. Um, and maybe they die later, 12 years later with cancers. Um, but we don't really have a record of what happens to people who have lesser, you know, less, you know, lower doses and less and you know, not acute symptoms. And that's exactly what the Soviets recorded, you know, clandestinely in the years after the accident. And that's what my book talks about. It's, it's, a, it's an amazing story. So I'm not, you know, I'm myself not a fear monger. I'm just, I guess I'm reporting on people who were fear mongers <laughs> or they were people who are realistically calling out what was happening around them. Well, let's throw something else into the conversation. And that is the idea of the coal-fired power stations that everyone is rallying against uh, because of its effects, carbon dioxide, I'm guessing, contributing to climate change. How much more dangerous is that compared to nuclear power? Well, you know, the first um, organization that I've ever found to write the study that compares the safety of nuclear power versus the safety of, of coal was the U.S. Atomic Energy Agency in 1972. And they did this because they were um, facing a lot of uh, uh, angry Americans who were worried about the growth and the spread of nuclear power plants in the United States. And so, you know, one tactic is to relativize things. It's, you know, either nuclear or coal and coal kills more people than nuclear. And the first people to, to make that case were industry scientists within the U.S. Atomic Energy Agency. Um, and that's the same, you know, agency that... Uh, produce nuclear bombs for the Cold War. So they weren't a disinterested party. I think to try to make that choice, you know, it's either coal or nuclear, is a false choice. We have lots of options for, for energy outside of, of, of fossil fuels and, and nuclear power. And, you know, we're presented with these two choices, neither of which are, are very good, neither of which are very healthy or safe, um, when there's all kinds of other choices and that our great creative human brains are coming up with every day, geothermal, solar, wind, you name it. I work at uh, Massachusetts Institute of Technology in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and 
there, scientists there are, are creating just incredible uh, means to to um, to heat and to cool and to um, to cook and to do all kinds of things that, that are outside of the two options of fossil fuels and nuclear energy. Well, let's zoom back into that Chernobyl mm-hmm. um, zone because the Ukraine president has come out in recent weeks and said that he would like to transform the radioactive area around the the reactor into a tourist site. What would your reaction to that be? Well, the Ukrainian president um, is president because he he was an actor who played a president on TV. He held auditions for citizens to audition for different positions in his cabinet. So I, I just, you know, I want that to be out there first. So this is a very new president. He's extremely inexperienced president. And there have been all, there have been some pretty good ideas about what to do about that Chernobyl zone that they've been putting up. Um, they've been using it as a big, uh, Ukraine is a very sunny uh, country in Central Europe. And they've been building a big solar um, power generating plant there. That That's a wonderful use for that space. Um, it's, it'd be a great place to, to let a lot of trees grow. So, and the trees, you know, eat up a lot of carbon. Mm. Uh, having that place become a big um, disaster tourist amusement park where young people who are going to hopefully go on and procreate visit in the hundreds of thousands, that's a terrible idea. It's also a pretty disrespectful idea. I mean, people suffer greatly from that accident. And then to make it a form of entertainment and tourism it is, I think, a little unconscionable. What do you think is the attraction then for people wanting to go and, and visit and photograph? And they do. We're going to be chatting to someone later that's been there 21 times to take photos. Yeah. What do you think is the attraction? Well, I've been there many times myself uh, in order to follow biologists who are working in the zone and to interview workers who are there and, and to, 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 to write this book. I've, I've gone there as part of a job. Um, and I've gone there taking all kinds of precautions as I go. Um, I think part of the attraction, and so I know this place quite well, and it is fascinating, and I invite people to go visit it through, you know, virtually, uh, through Google Earth and like, by looking at other people's photographs. But I think part of the attraction is that Chernobyl is not only our past, but I think people worry in the back of their minds that it's potentially our future, that as we're in this extreme state of ecological crisis, that people you know, are thinking about more and more about disaster and ruins, maybe because they fear that Pripyat, the, the city that was abandoned next to the plant, uh, that will become the entire planet Earth, you know, that we're, we'll all have to, you know, sort of somehow jettison off this place if we keep going in the direction that we're going. And you notice, like, you know, it, it, as, as the consumer, global consumer capitalism speeds up, that we consume, we produce and consume at faster and faster paces. And we, we produce things and then we throw them out and we produce things and we throw them out. And that includes throwing out now whole places, mm-hmm. whole cities. And even people are sort of tossed off as disposable. Um, so I think that people are fascinated because this is sort of a trend that might not just be part of the past. So nice segue then into my final question, which is, Kate, could a Chernobyl-like disaster happen again? Oh, sure. I mean, you know, any kind of disaster can happen. And, and um, you know, nuclear power plants, like everything else, are run by humans. And humans are, unfortunately, uh, we're not all perfect. We're, we're failable. And we, we lose attention and we make, make mistakes. 
The biggest problem we have in the United States and in other parts of Europe too is that we have nuclear power plants with that store also a lot of radioactive waste. And there's no place like America's nuclear waste is homeless. We we have we do not have a nuclear repository. There's been no community willing to host uh, the national repository for the great amount of radioactive waste that the United States has produced. So that waste is all stored right next to the nuclear power plant. And so if the nuclear power plant does have a fire, an explosion, something like that, the radioactive waste is also there, with, which contains a lot more radioactivity than just the nuclear reactor itself. Um, we have more extreme weather now in the United States. So if a hurricane, a typhoon, a flood hits one of these um, ponds that is storing all this radioactive waste and that pond drains, that waste will heat up and it could also burn or have an explosion. So we're in it because we don't really know, we don't have the technology, we haven't figured out what to do with radioactive waste. We've put ourselves in a, in a far more precarious situation than just merely the problems with and the complications of running a nuclear reactor plant itself. Look, Phil, Kate had so much more to say that we couldn't fit it into the podcast. But if you'd like to know more about her research, you can buy the book Manual for Survival. And by the way, Kate does argue the official death toll from the disaster ranges between 31 and 54 people. But she says in reality, radio uh, radiation exposure from the disaster could have caused between 35,000 and 150,000 deaths in Ukraine alone. Oh, no, that's just tragic. And the, and the long-term consequences we still don't know about. And as we said at the beginning of the podcast, travel to Chernobyl is not new. Tim is an Australian freelance writer who, while he was in the Ukraine, decided to take a paid tour to visit the site. And he's watched the series too. I did. We, uh, we absolutely loved it here. It was, uh, it was great. Who's we? Uh, so me and me three housemates, we, we signed up to a Foxtel 10-day trial to watch the six episodes. We watched them in two days. We, we didn't need the last day. Oh, you wasted four days of Foxtel subscription. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you did better than me. I went on to Apple TV and I paid $14.95, but I got through the whole series in the day. So. Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. No, nah, it, was, it was a really good um, series, I reckon. Well, as someone that has visited Chernobyl, how did it resonate in terms of, I'm guessing when you were on the ground, you had your own uh, kind of imagery happening on imagining what it must have been like on that day in 1986? Yeah, I, I think the thing that the HBO series did really well was that it didn't completely glorify the um, the radioactivity parts of it, you know, so... Uh, it, it sort of showed what the Soviet, you know, the incompetencies of the Soviet Union government in its main light. Yeah. And I think that's probably um, that's probably the most respectful way that they could have done it because uh, there's a lot of ways that they could have gone wrong with it and, and they didn't do that. Well, the other thing that they did really well was it's the most eerie place when you're there and it just... You know, that, that whole uh, documentary, uh, sorry, the whole TV series was, it just felt cold and eerie when you were watching. And um, that's, that's something that I think they got really, really right. What was it that motivated you to go? Why did you want to go? Pretty good question um, because I think a lot of people go with a different reason. I think the one for me was that I was just, it was really, I was in Ukraine and I was really curious about 
about this tour that, that I'd been told you could go on. So I heard something the other day, someone say that it's the closest mankind have ever come to their own mortality. And I just felt like that was, while I was there, it was something that I couldn't really pass up. You're absolutely right. The whole of humanity really um, hinged on some very brave local people. The guys that had 90 seconds on the rooftop to get rid of the graphite, the miners that came in and, and dug in the nude. And they were told, quite honestly, the future of this planet relies on your work. This is basically a suicide mission. Yeah. The one that sticks out is those three blokes that went underneath um, to turn all the pipes off. Apparently, I've read somewhere that those three guys actually survived. It's it's incredible to think that the lives of tens of millions of people depended on, you know, less than 100 people or whatever it was that, um, that was initially helping out. Now, this tour that you did was with the Ukrainian couple as well and took a bit of time for them to warm to you. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, uh, to, yeah, to say that, uh, to put it lightly. Um, so we we're in a pretty small group. There were two buses. We got picked up in Kiev at about seven in the morning. and But the one we were on, we sort of stayed away from the other bus. And there was only about oh, nine or ten of us on there. So when there's not many of you and you're with each other for 12 hours, you sort of you hope to have a bit of conversation, I guess, with the other people. But initially, yeah, this Ukrainian couple, they didn't really – they weren't really too interested in, in having a chat. Um, they, they sort of kept to themselves. They didn't know a lot of English and I know zero Ukrainians. So we weren't a good a good match. And sort of throughout the tour, this you know, they were arguing with the tour leader and the bloke in particular, his name was Alexi. He just wanted to get a move on with things. He was really impatient. And it was sort of, it was a little bit annoying to the rest of the, the group when we'd all paid a, a decent amount of money to be there and we just sort of, and work out why this couple would pay all the money and they just wanted to uh, hurry through the day and get home. And anyway, we as we the end of the tour, you sort of conclude you, you're on top of used to be a hotel and you're looking out over over the town. And yeah, I looked over and this big, rough Ukraine middle-aged Ukrainian blokes. He's in tears. He's very emotional, and it's his wife that's consoling him. And it, it, it turned out that he was actually um, evacuated from Pripyat. And I guess it's sort of uh, that fact sort of explained his behaviour throughout the day that it must have been a, a pretty tough thing for him to go back there. And we didn't ask anymore. We didn't find out if, if he'd lost, I assume he probably lost people or relatives or whatever in the, um, from the evac or new people that um, passed away. But we didn't, we didn't find out any of that. We just um, we sort of let him be. And we felt, we felt quite guilty actually at sort of, yeah, it was, a, it was a crazy experience. And what about your own safety? Were you concerned about that? Uh, not really. I'd read that, before going, I'd read that about 10,000 people uh, go every year. So if it was good for 10,000 people every year since whenever it opened, which I think was maybe about 2007 or something like that, then it was good enough for me. I think the thing you need to consider about this is that people are always going to be curious about something about a site like this. I think it's better to be open with it than to try and shut it away. I think a reasonable comparison might be Auschwitz in Germany, where it gets, I think, thousands of tourists every year. I think two things need to be done. The people running the tours need to do it respectfully and people who are on the tours need to be respectful about it as well. So long as it's considered by scientists safe, then I don't really have a... 
I don't really see too many problems with it. If you think you can learn something about human nature from that, then that's probably the right thing. And I think you did with, um, you know, the Ukrainian bloke. I will say that I don't think they've found the right sort of tone for it just yet. When I was there, there was sort of a big focus on the radioactivity, you know, that uh, yellow symbol with the black uh, dashes, the radioactive symbol, that was everywhere and there was people selling that sort of stuff outside, just outside the exclusion zone and there was the radioactive ice cream apparently or Chernobyl ice cream or something that you could buy on your way out and I just think that's a little bit, it's just not the right way to go about it. Um, and another thing that they did actually when I was there it, it was to sensationalise it a bit. So you'd walk into the school and there'd be a book open with a pen there sort of mid-sentence sort of thing as if that's when they were evacuated, which, or, you know, a teddy bear placed really deliberately in, in someone's house where you would walk and it was, as, it was as if they'd left it there just then, which clearly didn't happen. The place is so, to be honest, interesting and fascinating by itself that you don't really need these sort of excessive things to to make it any more than what it is, it's, it's fine as it is. And before they open it up any more than they already have to the rest of the world, I think they need to get that right. Probably something that you need to consider is before you go to those places, I guess it's the question you asked me at the start, Phil, is why are you going there? If, if you're going there sort of just to say that you have been there, um, then it's probably, I think you probably need to consider if it's the right thing to do. If you're going there because it's, um, you're genu- genuinely curious and you want to know more and you can enhance the place rather than take value away from it, then maybe it's worth going. But I saw the other day that some Instagram models were taking photos in Chernobyl sort of half nude and I, I saw a tweet that if anything describes 2019, it's yeah. that people are doing this. I think we'll be talking about this dark tourism stuff for a while and the ethics of it. Yeah, very true, Tim. Now, we will get an answer to his concerns of staging very shortly when we speak with a photographer who has visited the area no less than 21 times. But Tim went with a leading touring, uh, leading tour company, Solo East Travel, and they come highly recommended. We'll have a link to their page in show notes because it's full of fantastic info, including the length of time that you should spend in any one spot based on radiation levels. Photographer David McMillan has been there, as you say, Kim, 21 times right inside the Chernobyl exclusion zone. And he's put together a book called Growth and Decay, featuring more than two decades of incredible photos. So, David, when was the first time you went to the exclusion zone? Uh, 1994. It was October of 1994. Wow, it was all still pretty fresh then. Yes. Yeah, it was. You know, being in some of the cities, etc., was as if people had just left. What prompted you to go there? Uh, there, there were several things. Uh, the most immediate prompt was an article in a magazine by a guy called Alan Weissman, who subsequently wrote the book *The World Without Us*. But he described what Pripyat, the city of Pripyat, was like, which is where the workers lived for the nuclear power plant, and it really sounded interesting given the kinds of photographs. I'd been taking and with an interest in, you know, kind of the tension between the natural world and, um, let's say, well, culture, you know, that, that sort of tension. Uh, what was happening there sounded very, very interesting and possibly something that, you know, would make sense to me if, if I could get in. But, but another motivation was actually an Australian 
well, I think he was English, but lived in Australia when he wrote the book, Neville Shute. Yeah, On the Beaches is the one that I read as, as a teenager. And it, it was really frightening for me. I, I'm sure for many people, just the idea that what could happen, a city would be intact, there'd be no human life, but nothing would be destroyed because of you know nuclear fallout. And that's essentially what I found in Pripyat. I mean, of course, it was the consequence of an accident rather than uh, a war as described in Neville Shute's book. But um, nevertheless, it was this kind of realization of a fear I had as a child, or at least a young, a young person. I don't want to make it sound overly pessimistic. I, I went because I thought I could make interesting photographs, and uh, I didn't have any particular plans to return initially, because I really didn't know what I'd be allowed to photograph, or, you know, if the photographs would would be interesting to me but but they were and i felt i hadn't seen enough so i i went back the next spring in in april and uh i've gone back now 20 well i've gone back 21 times after the initial visit so i've been there 22 times altogether one of the major points of going back so often is to see how it changes and i'm yes. fascinated by this aspect as well when you remove remove humans from the environment what happens to the nature yes and how has it changed well i think as you'd expect i mean i didn't i didn't know if let's say the natural world would thrive i wasn't sure if radiation would have you know had a negative impact and apparently it has on some species certainly pine trees um, but in the city of Pripyat, again this is the city where the workers lived that uh, it, it, it's dense with vegetation um, in the book that came out recently which is called growth and decay i have a number of not before and after, but let's say eight years after the accident, which is the first time I was there until, you know, most recently about 32 years after the accident. Uh, and the changes are, are really pronounced. It, 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 at certain times of the year, it's very difficult to walk outside in Pripyat because of the density of the vegetation. So I've chosen to go generally in October when some of the foliage, you know, the leaves have fallen. It's easier to see. Now vegetation is appearing inside of buildings in addition to, you know, where you'd expect it to be outside. In the book, there are three photographs of a tree growing in a hotel room. And uh, the very first photograph is from 1996. The trees may be you know, perhaps half a meter high. And there's some ferns and other vegetation on the floor of this hotel room, which, which I thought was extraordinary when I, when I found it. It's the only hotel in the city of Pripyat. And I went through a lot of it and there wasn't very much. Most of the bedding and, you know, the, the furniture had been taken out. But in this particular room, there had been a burst water pipe, it seemed to me, which flooded the carpeting uh, and someone must have walked through or a bird or something dropped seeds. And uh, there's, you know, this whole sort of little environment, green environment growing out of a carpet. And then there are subsequent photographs, one where the tree has reached the height of the room. Uh, and in the third photograph, it sort of finished, finished the life cycle. And you can see the extent of the roots 
that in some cases have come out of the carpeting and in some cases are still kind of enveloped by carpeting. But yeah, it's pretty extraordinary. We spoke with Tim earlier in the podcast, an Australian, a young Australian guy who went on a, a tour to Chernobyl uh-huh. um, and into Pri- Pripyat, the, the city. Yes. This isn't a leading question, but he felt like that there was a sense of staging. Well, it's sometimes difficult to tell. I mean, if, you know, in some cases, for example, if there's a gas mask on a doll, uh, definitely someone's been fiddling around. There has been vandalism. There's been a lot of looting. Uh, and, and lately there have been tourists. So one really never knows what they're seeing, you know, how authentic it is. So increasingly over the years, I have to say, I can tell things have been moved. I'd say in my case, most of the buildings I go into, I suspect at least they're off limits to tourists, although I'm sure tourists have gotten in them. But, um, you know, generally what I'm photographing is probably, you know, what happened occurred naturally. I guess I, I feel that in a way I'm a tourist and, you know, if, if, if I'm allowed, why shouldn't anyone else be allowed? But it does get in the way of the work. Subsequently, I guess because of the series, there has been a huge influx of tourists. And I'm not planning on going this year, but if I were, I think I'd be distressed by an increase in the number of people. Initially, I'd encounter the occasional scientist, maybe a journalist. When Once there was a Swedish television crew, you know, people just small scale, a few people, maybe uh, landscape architects uh, in one instance. But rarely tourists, you know, people that were there just to look and, you know, take a few selfies. and Dark tourism, I think we call it, Phil. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, making sure that it doesn't, you know, become disnified in a way that, you know, the risk. Well, yes. Yeah, I think it it runs that risk. In fact, even on my very first visit, um, you know, the, the people, the interpreter, guide, and the driver would take me to places, you know, here's where they're burying vehicles and here's where they've stored helicopters. And it, it did seem like kind of a black Disneyland, but now because of, you know, people being charged to take a tour, uh, it's, it's becoming codified in a way, you know, um, there'll be certain highlights on the tour on their itinerary and yeah, it, it will be disnified in a way that it hadn't been sort of officially, formally. But I can understand the motivation. What about health-wise? I mean, you've been there 21 times, and we will share in show notes a link to um, the most popular tour company that takes, you know, around nine to ten people um, each Uh time in a bus. But they list uh, on their website the amount of time that you should be spending in any particular area from Chernobyl town for one hour, there's no extra radiation. But once you get to reactor number four, you should only really spend 10 minutes in that area. How have you coped with taking photos, you know, 21 times and exposing yourself to um, potential, well, obvious, not potential to radiation? Well, uh, the first time I went, there was no one with a dosimeter. So, you know, there was kind of folk knowledge, let's say, that right in front of the reactor was more contaminated than further away. I mean, there were obvious places. And 
uh, on my first visit, for example, I, I did want to take a few photographs in front of the reactor and was told, you know, maybe you should only spend about five minutes. Uh, interestingly, uh, on my first visit, the, the vehicles that I was taken around in were those that were too contaminated to leave. You know, they, they had received a certain amount of radiation, and although they were deemed safe enough to take people around, they, they were too contaminated to leave the exclusion zone. The next visit, I, I rented uh, a Geiger counter dosimeter thing, and it was very interesting for the people that were taking me around to find out actually what the levels of radiation were. You know, this I've been going for 25 years, and although I suppose one doesn't know some of these cancers and things uh, take time, as far as I know, it, I've had no negative effects whatsoever. And uh, I think it's clean enough. Certainly it's clean enough. So I, I have no, no concerns about that. My real concern actually lately has been the stability of the buildings. Uh, some of them, you know, well, have collapsed and in some cases the floors are kind of unstable. And in some cases, I'm the only person to have been in that building since the last time I was there. And, you know, that's that's something more tangible than something you can't feel or see or smell or, you know, anything like that. Well, for somebody that had never intended to re-photograph uh, those places, you've certainly given us a fantastic time-lapse or piece of history that um, people will appreciate, David. Well, thank you. No, we Me. must thank you. David has given us permission to use his images in this episode and we're very grateful. Pripyat was home to about 45,000 people at the time of the explosion, mostly employees of the nuclear power plant and their families. And is it safe to go? At the moment, the Ukraine government has permitted entry into the surrounding areas of Chernobyl but with strict conditions. To enter the 30-kilometre exclusion zone, that's about 18 miles, you'll need a day pass, which and they're only available from several established tour operators and you must apply at least 10 days in advance. Um, you have written a story actually on how safe it is to go um, with a little more detail which we'll share in show notes. So we hope you enjoyed this special episode and in, in a way we're going rogue again next <laughs> week, Phil. <laughs> delivering a podcast dedicated solely to van life. In the meantime, you can get the World Nomads podcast from wherever you grab your favourite podcasts and please feel free to share, rate and subscribe. It's and about feeling the love. Thanks very much to those people who have already done so. If you'd like to email us, we, you can get us at podcast at worldnomads.com. Bye. Bye. The World Nomads podcast. Explore your boundaries.